Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast, and grab a box of tissues, because it's about to get sappy. For the first and only time as host, I'm going to read from a prepared statement. Hosting this podcast has been the greatest pleasure of my professional life. Across over 200 episodes, I've been fortunate to speak to and meet some of the smartest and coolest people in the world. I'm grateful to all my guests who, without exception, came on this show, operated in good faith, and articulated their message in a thoughtful way. I'd like to think this show played a small but important part in turning down the temperature of our national discourse and providing a platform for people of all backgrounds, beliefs, and walks of life to discuss and debate the issues that will affect our futures for decades to come. Over three and a half years at Tech Freedom, I've had the privilege of waking up every day knowing that I'd be fighting for a cause I believed in and policies I truly believed would make the world a better place to innovate. But it's not enough to love what you do, you gotta love who you do it with. So I want to thank all the current and former employees at Tech Freedom who made working here such an incredible experience. And special thanks to those who got this show off the ground and contributed to its success. To Jackie Silseth, who designed the killer branding and helped launch the show at the very beginning. To Dan Benevente, who made sure I always had the tools and equipment I needed to disseminate our propaganda to as many years as possible. To Dan Reynolds, our longtime editor, who soundproofed our studio and made the audio crisp and clean for our listeners. To Josh Evans, whose research and preparation was as integral to the show as anything and helped dupe our listeners into thinking I actually know what I'm talking about. To Ashkin Kazarian, who booked guests and was a guest herself and produced some of our best episodes on topics like CIA hacking and NSA surveillance. To Rob Winterton, who also produced episodes and appeared on the show, and whose clever marketing grew our audience and enhanced our brand. To Austin Carson, for providing our funniest episodes, and bringing an aura of positivity and optimism to this show, which could sometimes get a little depressing with the subject matter. To Baron Soka, for hiring me, appointing me as the first host of the podcast, and believing in my ability to do this. And most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners, for following me on this adventure, listening to me bloviate, and driving me to do better. Now I'm sure you listen to this show for the thought-provoking discussion, not my buttery smooth voice and dad jokes. But I assure you, the Tech Policy Podcast will and must go on. And don't you dare unsubscribe. In the spirit of dynamism and innovation, the show will iterate and change for the better. And if you really do like the sound of my voice, I'm sure the next host will have an even butterier and smoothier voice. And let's be honest, you were probably getting sick of me anyway. So gear up for a fresh host who will have an even better radio face than I do. When I do start another podcast someday, I'll be sure to come back on here and shamelessly promote it. Until then, never hesitate to reach out to me at the email address in today's show notes. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzstraber. On today's show, protecting your data. As the saying goes, there are those who've been hacked and those who don't know it yet. And after 140 million Americans saw their information compromised in the Equifax breach, many might be wondering, what is my government doing to prevent this? Even those of us who come from a libertarian world, we always say that the one thing the government really should be doing is protecting people from harm that they otherwise cannot protect themselves from. So joining me to discuss this is Neil Chilson, acting chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission. That is the nation's chief consumer protection authority. And at the FTC, he serves acting chairman Maureen Olhausen. Neil, thanks for joining the show. Thanks. 
Thanks for having me. And sometimes at the end of the show, I'm always like, hey, if you want to be on a, a guest on the show, just reach out to me. And Neil is a fan of the podcast and reached out to me to be on the show. And here we are. So I encourage others to do the same. Now, Neil, so much of the focus is often on Congress, right? It's like, oh, Congress isn't doing anything. Congress passed a cyber information sharing bill. Uh, why isn't Congress passing laws every time there's a hack? But people might be forgetting that for the past, what, 100 years, there's been this agency, the FTC. It's a general purpose regulator. It's the kind of regulator that enforces against deceptive claims and, and when, when companies lie or, or commit fraud. So, um, you know, it's not so obvious though when we're talking about data, right? It's obvious if a company that sells diet pills tells you they're safe, they're not safe, someone gets sick, and then the company gets in trouble. But what does it mean to be injured with information, this term informational injury? Right. Uh, well, Evan, let me back up a little bit first and just say that as uh, uh, in participating in this podcast, I, my views are my own. They don't necessarily represent um, the the chairman's or any other commissioner. That's or the, the classic FTC Twitter yes. disclaimer. All views yes, of my right. own. RTs don't equal endorsements. Right, right, right. <laughs> also true. Um, uh, so uh, that's a that's a really uh, interesting question. Um, I, I'm glad you set it up that way by talking about the FTC as the general purpose um, consumer protection agency. Um, the FTC has existed for more than 100 years and has a, a two-pronged mission, competition and consumer protection. Um, and there's a lot of... Uh, uh, interaction between those two and sort of a complementary uh, functions. And so uh, when it comes to privacy and data security, the FTC has applied both its general Section 5 authority, that's its general consumer uh, enforcement authority. And uh, we like to we like to talk about the FTC as an enforcement agency more so than a regulator, although enforcement isn't the only thing that we do. Um, it is the primary focus, especially in the privacy space. And so we've, we've applied that Section 5 enforcement authority as well as um, various statutes that Congress has assigned uh, responsibility to the FTC on. So, for example, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, um, different segments of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Um, all of those have to do with privacy and data security. And so, so we enforce some specific statutes as well as the general Section 5 authority. So uh, where, where injury comes into this analysis, this enforcement analysis, is uh, primarily under Section 5, you know, we have two different types of authority. We have our deception authority, um, the basics uh, of which are if a company promises to do something and that promise would affect how a consumer makes a choice in the marketplace, um, that is, that it's material, uh, that that the company has to keep that promise. And if they break that promise, then um, then we could bring a, a an enforcement action. And the idea there is that the consumers are operating with the information they have. And um, while they make certain decisions, they might have made different decisions or better decisions or better informed decisions, if not for the deception, if not for the lie. Right, exactly. And so, um, you know, there's there's several different varieties of deception, including deceptive omission, when the very characteristic of the product might be something that a consumer uh, would have kind of assumes they bring their experience to it. So the classic example is if a used car salesman sells a car, uh, and that car doesn't go more than 35 miles an hour, um, even if he doesn't make any promises about the speed in which it would go. <laughs> it's a reasonable um, assumption right, to right, make, right. right. The, a consumer would assume from basic experience that cars go faster than that, and so they would have to disclose, the failure to disclose something like that would be a uh, deceptive practice. 
So that's deception, and you know, there's there's a more straightforward deception where you make a specific claim, you know, lose ten pounds a week, um, uh, and, and then, then you, don't. you don't, and then the product they have no substantiation for that, and that's a that's a more classic one. Um, in the information space, where we've uh, you know the informational injury and privacy space, the deception authority has been used and is probably the most common tool that we use in the privacy enforcement actions. Um, where companies make promises about how they handle consumer data. And uh, when they make those promises and then don't keep those promises, we can bring cases. So that's deception. Unfairness is a, uh, you can kind of think of it deception as a subset of unfairness, but the unfairness test is statutorily um, that there has to be a substantial injury to consumer that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> cause or likely to cause a substantial injury to a consumer that the consumer cannot avoid and that is not outweighed by benefits to consumers or to competition. So there's a built-in balancing test in the unfairness uh, test, as well as a sort of threshold test about substantial injury, and as well as a uh, something that, that recognizes that consumers, uh, that there are some places where consumers can actually choose and avoid the, the injury and we won't hold a company responsible. Right. Maybe they cases. chose that the benefits or the convenience or the, they wanted the service, even though they knew that there was a risk. Now, um, this topic may seem very dense to yes, people, yes. but we are talking about things that people encounter in their daily lives, services that they use. So just give us your most salient example to help people understand maybe a deception case you've brought and then an unfairness case. Uh, uh, great question. So uh, the most, the most probably salient uh, example I can think that kind of gives a, an example of both right. um, would be our TrendNet case, which was against a company that uh, sold home security cameras that were used, you know, for baby monitors or for home security. Um, among the claims on the advertising and on the packaging were that the the product was secure, um, and uh, so there was a claim there about the product. And then, um, but what, what turned out is that in our complaint, we alleged that the cameras, um, anybody with the IP address of the camera could see the video feed. And so uh, what ended up happening is that hackers who discovered this were posting live feeds of hundreds of consumers' cameras, you know, watching their kid in the crib or, you know, just monitoring their home. And so our complaint uh, alleged both deceptive practices in that the the company claimed that the cameras were secure and they didn't even meet a bare minimum of security. And then an unfairness claim where uh, the injury to consumers in their uh, in their the invasion of their their private uh, home was substantial. It wasn't outweighed by any benefits because the cost to secure these cameras was not high. That's one of the examples that you might consider as a factor. Um, it was, and it would be quite reasonable to to secure them with a password. And in fact, with software updates, I believe the company eventually did that. Um, and then it wasn't it wasn't avoidable because consumers weren't aware that the camera had this this substantial uh, security flaw. So, yeah, no one would expect in buying a home security system that anybody could look at it. Like maybe you expect that the company that sold it to you can look at right. it because that's part of the benefit, right? It's that if, if someone's breaking in, they can maybe go and see the break in and call the police. But no one would ever reasonably expect that I'm buying this security camera. I'm buying a MacBook right. and anybody who knows my IP address, which could be anybody, IP right. address is, is fairly public, yep. um, can just 
happened to the feet. I mean, that's right. that's kind of crazy. Yeah. So and and in that case, we had very specific examples. I mean, we had evidence. This wasn't a theoretical thing that could happen. We had it happened. we had yeah. we had hackers that were just put, posting web pages with hundreds of these feeds. Where bragging about it, it, really. Bragging yeah. about it. Exactly. <laughs> so that, yeah. So now you kind of get a sense of this whole deception thing. Now, on the other side of the coin, from the right, um, you've had criticism for being too aggressive, right? Um, you know, too too much enforcement. Um, groups like Tech Freedom have also been on this uh, cause of action. There are groups that say the FTC, just like a lot of government, is run amok. It goes too far. It's arbitrary and capricious. Um, sometimes when the FTC brings an enforcement action against a company, the company never admits any liability. It just settles. And then the FTC takes that settlement and assumes that that is now a law. You know, this is called the common law of consent decrees, right? So it's like, okay, a company says, you got me kind of, I'm not going to admit liability. I'll pay a fine. Should that then be applied to another company in the future, even if that initial offending company never admitted to any wrongdoing? Does that not just create massive uncertainty? Are companies essentially left to be looking at this wide range of cases and try to interpret it? To some degree. And and you've had former FTC commissioners like Josh Wright say that there's not enough guidance, that companies just don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And you could have a negative consequence here when we talk about breaches, right? We want companies to be upfront about data breaches. We do not want them hiding them. We don't want them revealing them six months after the fact when consumers might have been able to do something proactive to protect their information, you know, this at the time of the breach. And one of the reasons companies might be unwilling to share information about breaches is if they're worried that the FTC is going to come down on them and put them under a 20-year consent decree. So what do you say to this criticism from you know groups like Tech Freedom and others who say, essentially, companies don't know what they're allowed to do. They don't know what they're supposed to do. There's not enough guidance because they're left to interpret a sea of cases that have ambiguous outcomes where companies don't actually admit any fault. Well, uh, I, I would first say that obviously, um, like any organization, and uh, the, the FTC doesn't always get it right. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, you know, I am a proponent of the case-by-case approach that the FTC has taken uh, to privacy. Um, one point of clarification is that um, our orders are not considered legally binding, except on the companies that are under them. Um, I think if you wanted to look at what the the common the the quote common law that that you were referring to, you might look at the complaints uh, rather than the orders. Um, the complaints are where the FTC sets out the legal standard and why they believe that the the behavior uh, in that accompanying uh, you know in the complaint that accompanies the the settlement why the behavior by that company uh, violated the law. And and there, I think the FTC has provided. Um, a lot of guidance. You know, we we are trying to provide more as the world evolves. Part of the challenge is that data security and privacy are, are spaces that move so fast um, that uh, we hear a lot about certainty and the need for certainty. In such a fast-moving space, it's really hard to see even how specific rules would be particularly certain. They might be certain for a little while, um, but they would quickly become out of date. And then also there's the challenge that you have certain things that are not very um, conducive to innovation. So, you know, the AT&T uh, Bell Monopoly telephone system was was very certain 
for and the regu- regulations that uh, applied to it was very certain for you know 20 30 40 years but it wasn't a very innovative space and so uh, so the, the challenge is to strike a balance with, a, with an approach to privacy and data security in a fast-moving area that um, allows companies to try things out that are new um, and then addresses and focuses very much on where there is consumer injury. Now, I think reasonable minds can differ on uh, whether X case or Y case um, appropriately focused on the right type of consumer injury. Um, I think that's that that is a concern, and that's part of the evolving process um, of of the case law that the FTC does. Um, but I think if you look at the overall trends, I think I think uh, industry and privacy lawyers and data security lawyers uh, can look at the patterns and see what sorts of things um, are clearly safe, what sorts of things are risky, and what sorts of things are clearly not. Okay, and uh, and that spectrum, uh, granted, it's not 100% certain, but I think there is a lot of guidance in there, and companies can then make a trade-off and then make their case um, that hey, what we did was responsible, was reasonable. And I will point out that on that on that front, the FTC closes uh, two-thirds of the data security cases it it investigates um, without bringing a a complaint or an order against the company because for a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones is because the security practices that the company had were reasonable. And so- Right, so just because they got hacked, you're not automatically assuming in every case that the mere existence of a breach is unreasonable because large companies, well-resourced companies have been the victims of breaches, the government itself, the federal government has been a victim of a breach. And that might be a criticism that it's not fair to just say, you got hacked, you screwed up, and now we're going to fine you. Like, you know, companies that try really hard to protect their consumers are the victims of hacks. Hacking is very sophisticated, and it wouldn't necessarily be fair to just say, you got hacked, therefore you did something wrong. Absolutely. I mean, the, the FTC standard has always been uh, reasonableness, um, and that that means, you know, considering the sensitivity and the volume of the data that the company has, what the size of the company is and the resources it has available, what the sophistication of the attack was. Um, a, a breach is not a, a sign of liability itself. It's not the conclusive evidence. Um, and and the FTC has always been clear about that. And that's why, like I said, we've, we've closed uh, more than two thirds of the cases that we investigate in a data breach situation. So now, given that there's so much uncertainty and the FTC is not a rulemaking agency, that's an important distinction you brought up earlier in the show, whereas you have agencies like the FCC, which write regulations. Uh, You have agencies like the FAA, which write regulations about drones. The FTC is an enforcement agency. You are enforcing existing laws. And in theory, you're not writing regulations. Now, critics might say the mere fact that you bring enforcement actions creates kind of a quasi-regulation. But you've addressed that point already. But given the uncertainty on informational injury, right, can we agree on what the hell that is? How does it relate to data security and privacy? What is allowed under the Constitution? All these questions, the FTC does not throw up its hands and say, we like these things are all settled. Rather, despite not being able to make rules, the FTC does hold workshops. Mm-hmm. And there is going to be an informational injury workshop on December 12th. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to accomplish with that? And how can people participate? So uh, that that workshop is a 
another in the long line of uh, workshops that the FTC has had to try to uh, get at very specific issues. So we've had uh, one on big data, and we did a report. We had a, a workshop on Internet of Things and the, the issues there and, and did a report. Um, the informational injury workshop is very focused on how do we understand the types uh, of harms that can happen from privacy violations or uh, data security breaches, and then how do we um, how do we measure those types of harms so that we can make sure that when the FTC is bringing a case that we're focused on where we can do the most good, um, and then how do consumers and businesses make the trade-offs uh, when they're deciding how to use information um, or how to uh, submit their information to a, a company? How, how do they make those trade-offs, and what can we learn from that about uh, consumer preferences and what the sort of risks uh, that companies take uh, and what what factors do they think about? So. Um, uh, the comment period, there's, there's an open comment period uh, for the, the workshop. I, I think that actually closed last Friday, um, but submissions are uh, always welcome, I think, uh, although we may not officially consider them. Um, I'm always looking forward to, uh, to hearing more um, from people outside. Uh, I would recommend that people who are interested attend the workshop on December 12th that will be here in Washington, D.C., um, it will also be live streamed, and I I believe there will be you know Twitter uh, hashtags associated with it, and more <laughs> more will be coming more will be coming out as that gets closer. Um, we are uh, you know working on the agenda and working on the participants. So if you have um, anything of interest to share, uh, please uh, you can shoot me an email at nchilson at ftc.gov. Um, and I will pass it along to the right people. Uh, so we welcome people's participation. I think this is going to be a great workshop to help us um, think hard about an issue that uh, in the FTC's past uh, cases, you know, a lot of them have been low-hanging fruit where the, the harms are so obvious that uh, um, we didn't have to do a lot of uh, economic analysis or economic thinking or uh, like that in the in the initial stages because everybody agreed there was injury to consumers. And so um, I think as the world gets to be a more complicated place and the data uses get to be more complicated, we need some we need some deep thinking about how to uh, appropriately understand consumer injury so that we can we can apply the law. Um, as Congress has has written it for us, and so um, that's that's one of the goals for the workshop, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. So we'll make sure to put your email in the show notes in case people want to ask any questions. For context, we're recording this on October 31st. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope that this comes out with enough time where it's still relevant. <laughs> so we'll make sure right. to yes, we'll make yes, sure yes. to get it out before the before the workshop, and we'll, we'll also link to the uh, workshop page so people can submit comments. Now. One thing that might be on the minds of, of critics of the agency is I love Maureen Olhausen. She is humble. She is uh, restrained in the way she uses the agency's authority. And she, she, she looks at regulation the right way, and it's very balanced. And I love Neil Chilson, and, he, and he's also <laughs> like that. They might be thinking that's only as good as the duration of that leadership, that the FTC has tools at its disposal that are prone to abuse. If you get a politically minded chairman who just wants to make headlines going after companies, you know, uh, kick ass and take names, maybe they've got ambitions beyond bureaucracy. 
um, elected office, which might uh, benefit from saying, I took out this company, I brought down this search engine, I brought down this social media network. How do you guard against that? So, you know, I, I've read some of the, the chairman's speeches and she talks about, I'm not necessarily fundamentally questioning the approach of the agency, which I appreciate. Then again, there are a lot of people who want to reform the processes of the agencies precisely because if you get the wrong person in there, they can abuse their power. So if Congress is looking at reforming the agency, that's the reason our Tech Freedoms President Baron Soka testified before Congress about this. And if Congress is considering acting on cybersecurity or acting on privacy, you know, I always close out the show the same way because I'm lazy, <laughs> but what is your message to those congressional staffers, those people in those committees who are thinking about changing the agency or reforming the agency, given that it hasn't really changed in over 30 years? It's it, about 30 years. I think that was the last time it was, it was authorized. Um, what do you say to those people who are thinking, I want to safeguard the future. I want to future-proof the agency. I want to make sure that it cannot be abused by someone who is less humble than Maureen Olhausen. Well, uh, I appreciate those those uh, compliments. And um, uh, I do think that uh, good leadership makes a big difference. But um, we have designed a government uh, that hopefully, I mean, the whole, the whole point of designing institutions is um, to make sure that Politicians don't have to be angels um, to still protect uh, the citizens, and so. Um, so God, you're so cynical. <laughs> so inst institutional design is something that I'm very interested in, and I often think of it in, in uh, as a compare and contrast between the FTC's approach and the FCC's approach. Um, and I, I I think there are some institutional characteristics of the FTC that limit the ability of uh, a single leader to um, derail the mission. Um, and among those are, first of all, it's a bipartisan commission, which is not different from the FCC, but that does mean that you have to do at least some uh, outreach to the other side often. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> um, other big differences is our case-by-case -case enforcement approach is hard to do sweeping changes through, right? So um, unlike a rulemaking, which could affect a whole industry in a, you know, a single swipe of the pen. And then be undone the next time. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, case by case, uh, even if you get some cases wrong, in the, and I, I think there are cases, obviously, that my boss has dissented on um, in the past. Uh, uh, even with those wrong cases, um, there's always the opportunity for the, the next company to say, hey, that was that was wrongly decided. And, and also, there's also the ability of new leadership to change uh, emphasis and, and refocus the agency on its core uh, you know, mission of, of protecting consumers from fraud uh, and uh, deceptive and unfair practices. So that's, that's some of them. Uh, among the other ones is that we have a Bureau of Economics that weighs in on every single vote that the commission would have, every single matter that the commission votes on. Uh, that serves, I think, as a sort of... A, um, uh, both the other uh, bureaus, the Bureau of Competition, the Bureau of Consumer Protection, are aware that BE is going to weigh on, weigh in on things, and so I think that there's a sort of institutional design where you have a good balancing um, uh, between the different sort of lawyers and the economists in a way that I think is has been very productive. It really um, sparks a lot of discussion at the commission level and between the bureaus, and I think that has. Uh, that has a limiting effect as well. Um, if you have to make your economic case uh, for a decision, 
every single time, I think that that does help uh, constrain where leadership can go. The other thing is, is that uh, law enforcement is inherently a bottom-up thing. It's something that staff has to find real facts, real injury in the field that, that meets our standard. And, um, and you can't just generate that sua sponte as a leader. Um, you're, you can, you can direct staff to focus on certain issues. Um, but, uh, unlike a rulemaking, again, it has to be at least somewhat tethered to what's happening out there in the, in the world. Um, because you have to be able to bring a case and ultimately, uh, if you're too aggressive, those cases go to court and, and courts will, um, slap down uh, over-aggressive enforcement actions in a way that uh, is quite different, actually, than how courts uh, historically have deferred to rulemaking. Right. We've talked um, about under, Chevron yeah, deference on the show before, so, of course. Yeah. So, so, um, so I do think there are some institutional advantages to the FTC that help constrain some of that. Now, there's obviously things that uh, Congress could do to make the, uh, you know, make the agency better, I think. Um, We've often talked about the common carrier exception as being a sort of artifact of a world where, you know, the bell companies were pervasively regulated monopolies. That's not the world we live in anymore. So that that that's kind of out of date. And there's some other uh, other things that Congress has considered. And of course, um, uh, you know, we're we're open to uh, exploring those, obviously. And, and Congress is, you know, our boss ultimately. And so uh, so. Um, as they make choices, um, you know, we, we, we welcome their input and clarification on, on the F- FTC's mission. Um, All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, I'll make sure to plug the uh, workshop into the show notes in case people want to provide comment. And we'll make sure to put Neil's email in there in case you ever have any questions. He is a very responsive guy. Great. Um, Neil Chilson, uh, Acting Chief Technologist at the Federal Trade Commission, where he serves the Acting Chairman, Maureen Olhausen. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate really you listening. Uh, find this podcast in the iTunes store. Uh, please leave us a review because we'll help others find the show. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. And feel free to always send us an email, mediatechfreedom.org, especially if you want to be a guest. That's how Neil's on the show today. Uh, that's it. We'll see you next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.